Hello, friend. Hello, friend. Hello, friends. Moro, is Mr. Robot the apex of the representation of cybersecurity in popular media? Well, I hope so, because, uh, sorry, my camera just went out again. Uh, I was gonna, You've I was been gonna hacked say, by those two guys who got into our intro video. Well, I was going to say possibly, but, uh, you know, where I was positioned, I was a Christian Slater. And uh, if I'm a heartthrob, then damn, uh, I think it is totally the apex of uh, cybersecurity. So do you, do you know why you got to be Christian Slater and I'm, I'm Elliot? Uh, I'm, I'm thinking Elliot's a lot more talented. So ergo you. <laughs> it's just because I made the intro video. And so I got to pick. And then afterwards, I thought the same thing you did. Wait a minute. Isn't Ro <laughs> Mr. Robot Cooler and Christian Slater? It's got... Uh, uh, I, oh, well. Know. As a big Heathers fan, I, I really should have switched those, but mm -hmm. you, I, I, give, I give creds to you. Well, thank you very there much. You I, I appreciate it. I appreciate that uh, I am Christian Slater in some weird, twisted mentality. <laughs> uh, hey, Derek, how you doing? Thank you so much for joining us, everybody. Uh, welcome to our fourth live stream of Moro Mike. Um, the last three weeks we've been covering how to job hunt, uh, and all of our advice. And we've had some really interesting guests. We thought this week we'd be a little bit more lighthearted and cover a topic we've been talking about, I don't know, for years about just getting together and talking about hacker movies and how our profession is portrayed in popular media. Um, I'm hoping that we will have a very lively audience uh, providing their own commentary. And we have uh, two guests joining us, um, uh, Spencer Brewer, Neil Stewart. Say hi, guys. Hello. Hi, guys. Uh, they're going to be joining us. And you know what? They're going to be doing most of the talking, I think. Um, Certainly I will be. <laughs> <laughs> Got opinions, do you? Despair. Uh, before we start, though, I want to give a little um, message that I think is really timely and important. Um, one of my coworkers brought this to me today. Uh, so this, um, it actually has a crossover into cybersecurity because it was brought to me as an incident response playbook. And if you haven't heard of this, this is a signal you need to recognize as more and more of us, because of working from home due to coronavirus, uh, are, we're in tons of video chats, uh, live streams like this, Zoom meetings at work, and house party for social. This is um, the signal for help for domestic abuse. And it looks like this. And the idea is that someone who's in a difficult domestic situation, when they join a meeting, they can make that hand signal. Um, and there is an incident response playbook for what to do if you see that signal. And I'm not going to go over it. I want to draw your attention to it. Um, the most important thing is you don't respond to that signal overtly during your video chat. You take action out of band exactly as you would in a cybersecurity incident. Um, and so, uh, and this was driven home to me because it was brought to me 
because someone had seen that in a chat and then uh, fortunately recognized it for what it was and then decided they needed to spread that message far and wide. So I'd like you to know it too. Um, that said, this is supposed to be a lighthearted evening. Uh, so Moro, what have you got for us? So yeah, uh, sorry, camera went off again, but I'm gonna I'm gonna just talk while uh, I'm frozen. So uh, yeah, no, uh, the purpose of this was to keep it lighthearted. Uh, as Michael mentioned uh, in the previous weeks, we've been doing job hunting and you know maybe uh, just a little too serious uh, of a uh, conversation. So we thought uh, we we should mix it up, keep the channel lighthearted and fun. And uh, yeah, one of our favorite tops- topics is uh, popular culture especially as it pertains to IT and then, you know, even cybersecurity in that. So we've got a, a list of topics we're going to cover, books and literature, significant events, movies. Uh, by no means is this comprehensive. Uh, this, uh, some of this is just really purely from our opinion and our standpoint. And honestly, if this starts to go down a rabbit hole on any one topic, we will probably break it out into a different segment and do this, you know, on another Friday. So... Uh, hopefully this will be a lot of fun. I know we got two panelists that are uh, super awesome and uh, you know super knowledgeable in a lot of this. So we'll definitely uh, we'll we'll definitely have some fun tonight. I think. So so for the people at home, um, look in the comment section, uh, the de- or the description of this uh, live stream. You'll see a number of links to a whole bunch of playlists. One of the things we can't do in this live stream is actually broadcast the media that we're going to be discussing. And so what we've done is produced a number of playlists so that you can see some of these during or after. And at certain points, if our panelists want, we'll actually uh, sort of pause, mute ourselves, watch a video, uh, and then we can all have a good chat or laugh at whatever it is we watched. And you will tell you what we're watching and you can follow it all along as well wherever it makes sense. Uh, if that's media that I can bring up on a browser and show some part of it, especially if it's static or web page, it's not music or audio, we'll do that. And uh, please feel free to start a lively discussion in the comments section. Um, we'll, we'll highlight your comments. We'll answer your questions. If you've got uh, really particularly uh, pithy remarks, we'll, uh, we'll include them. <laughs> All right, Moro, get us started. So uh, I think we were going to start off with music. And I know, Michael, you were interested in kind of showcasing your playlist. And I know there are certain uh, songs on there that I've listened to over the years. Uh, so I think uh, I think you really wanted to showcase the one song. Um, I, I, I do. I do. Okay. Uh, let me just bring in this. So here's the here's the playlist, and I can't play this, but what I'm gonna let's start off. I'm gonna pause this, uh, and Neil and Spencer and Moro, uh, this very first song in the playlist called "Secrets in the Future." Uh, I, I'd like you guys to listen to this, um, and if you could even bring up a lyric sheet, what really got me started thinking about music and cybersecurity is. Um, this song represents such a cross section of different cybersecurity, cryptography, hacking, everything. And it's actually, uh, pretty good. 
I never liked hip hop and I had never heard of this genre called nerdcore hip hop <laughs> until this song. And uh, yeah, I used to play nerdcore documentaries at, at parties at my house after this. So, uh, all right. Why don't we uh, mute ourselves and uh, give this a listen? Um, I encourage everyone at home to do the same thing. So yeah, I, I think I'm going to say, uh, I know everyone's still listening probably, uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, uh, in terms of hip hop, uh, I, 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 but, uh, sorry, uh, got distracted. Uh, I was going to say, you know, uh, I, 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 I like the lyrics. I, I think it, it does definitely, um. It definitely uh, does showcase some elements of uh, our, our job uh, in, in terms of uh, what um, what what uh, I guess ha- hacking culture represents. So uh... there's this particular uh, part of the lyric that I uh, really gets me because it's about random number generators. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> the fun time had by the thick-soled boot-wearing stomper who danced to produce random claptrap, and what he's referring to is the process for generating a PGP key, because it used to be that you had to type on your keyboard as randomly as you could to generate your PGP key, um, <laughs> and uh, then when he managed to uh, rhyme uh, uh, creme brulee with uh Oh, crack it like a creme brulee to refer to cracking codes. I was sold. I was sold. <laughs> oh, uh, hey, Michael. So uh, I think uh, some people are uh, misunderstanding. So uh, they'll have to listen to this stream on, on, on their own, uh, I guess, side YouTube window. Uh, we're not able to play it through our stream just because of um, some copyright concerns. So, yeah. That's, um, yeah, that's why it went all silent for a bit. So uh, now... Uh, I, I took the liberty of listening to some of this music uh, before the stream. So uh, that's why I was kind of talking a little bit about it before, uh, before, uh, before every, I think everyone else had a chance to listen to it. So, but um, no, it's uh, you know what? It's a good playlist. Uh, I think there's a lot of people, I think in cybersecurity that are into hip hop uh, EDM in general uh, I know I was. Uh, I'm now probably more heavy metal than anything. So, <laughs> uh, you know, but you, you see programmers like that and you'll even see that in, I think, TV shows, programmers that are listening to, you know, hardcore, you know, heavy metal while they're, you know, coding. So, uh, but yeah, that's what that playlist kind of uh, kind of brought brought the sense for me anyways. So, yeah, no, obviously awesome. So I also got thinking about this and I had uh, posted this on LinkedIn, um, I don't know, six, eight months ago, 
So I do this weird thing where I'll go through, um, say, Spotify, and I'll just search for words that I think are interesting and say, no one's ever written a song with that word in it until I find one. And so one day I'm like, you know what? No one's written a song about Wanna Cry. And this guy, Darksoft, he has written an entire album <laughs> uh, where every song is named after, and there's some sort of cross reference tie in, some abstraction based on famous malware. And you know, the funny thing is, even though this may not be exactly my style, it's actually good. <laughs> it's like, it's not just amateur, uh, it's not kitschy. It's, yeah. it's, it's music. And that blew my mind <laughs> that cybersecurity has now had that much impact so, on music. So uh, one song on your playlist, I'm going to actually, uh, I'm going to highlight is uh, stereo and stereo MCs connected. Uh, and the reason why I'm going to point that out is because uh, I think it's actually trending, trending back right now because of uh, Michael Jordan's uh, documentary on Netflix. And they actually play that song in, in the documentary. Uh, I remember it's also, that. It's also featured in Hackers. Exactly, exactly. And, that, and that's exactly what I was going to say. It's in Hackers. Now, I, I listened to it even before that. I remember when it first came out and I was thinking, yeah, it's got a nice vibe, right? And, uh, you know, a nice club vibe. Although I would have been too young to be in a club at that time when it came out. Uh, but I remember when when I was old enough and I was clubbing, it's like, oh yeah, stereo MCs, this is great. <laughs> so uh, yeah, no, uh, it, it was good to see your playlist and that that song certainly uh, cer- certainly got the uh, memories jogging again. So yeah, pretty so, much that whole hackers playlist is like pretty foundational to my enjoyment of EDM for years to come. Oh, I agree. I listened to it a lot when I was a teenager. Oh, I agree. That soundtrack yeah, was too. just off the hook and you know um, we'll go into that conversation when we cover the movie hackers but yeah i i agree i i love that soundtrack and you know i think it was because of this i i kind of you know went went out and tried to find the hackers soundtrack and there was some guy on youtube who ripped it and i'm like listening to it again i'm like oh man this was really good it's still good right now <laughs> so yeah, I, I i agree i agree so so michael uh any uh, final thoughts on your playlist uh, anything else yeah you add? So there's um, just two comments. One is uh, the number of songs that mention passwords um, is just, it's now just part of regular life and therefore they, they make it in. And I included in our playlist uh, one song, which is, is a great little sort of folk song about uh, not being able to remember your password because you're, you've just broken up and um uh, you can't you can't think of uh, anything else because the password was related to the person you broke up with. Um, but uh, I included another song which, oh, on its surface, doesn't seem to be related to cybersecurity or hacking, and that's called "URL Badman." Also, another delightful song, um, but it's related to a broader topic. So we might say, "Oh, it's not about hacking." Um, and it's not about defending systems. It's not about cryptography. It is about misinformation, disinformation. And uh, it's about the point of view of a young man who spends his entire life posting on forums and getting in arguments and spouting his opinion and wants to grow up and write for vice. And really it's sort of told 
um, uh, both sympathetically and critically from that point of view. And I think it's really uh, a important song because, you know, we essentially have this giant army of young people co-opted to uh, repeat the opinions of nation states in many cases. And that is part of our profession because it's actually part of a much larger um, cybersecurity issue. Disinformation and misinformation are part of nation state campaigns, which also include hacking. They're all driven toward the same goals that APTs execute. And so when I hear that song, I like to giggle and then I'm like, oh, crap, that's my job. <laughs> Literally, sure I would write threat intelligence reports about <laughs> this kind of crap. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay, so uh, and there's also. Off. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Neil. I've, I've got I've got one more to to suggest that you guys may not have thought of, and it covers more of the privacy aspect of of our uh, of our job. Uh, although obviously elements of security. Um, so Mariah Carey several years ago, wrote a, wrote a song called Touch My Body, in which she says that if there's a camera in my room, it's going with me. And I better, and I better not see any of those flicks on YouTube. <laughs> and so this idea of physical security, right? Mm, and, uh, right. and how, and, and how, how, uh, how easily, uh, uh, you know, like, it's not, it's trivially easy now to, for, for a bad actor, a boyfriend to, leave behind secret cameras uh oh, yeah. going along with that password idea right like mm -hmm. how, how much how much knowledge <laughs> of of your life is that person taking with them that can be used against you certainly right and and it weaponized in ways that we, we were we're just not used to right because yeah, everything's been so it, i always found that because <laughs> it's it's played for laughs right but it's you know it shouldn't be so I found yeah, that no. kind of weird. Okay. Yeah, no, good, 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 good suggestion, actually. Uh, and you're right. Uh, as much as we talk about cybersecurity, there is that uh, whole physical security thing that we, we also should consider. So, uh, so moving on to books and literature. Uh, so we've got a list of all sorts of uh, different types of books and, uh, well, literature. Uh, and uh, top of the list that, you know, uh, I think comes up in uh, almost everybody's conversation is uh, The Hacker's Manifesto by Mentor. And, you know, honestly, uh, for those of you who've read The Hacker's Manifesto, it's actually quite, it's quite interesting. Uh, I think it delves into the mind of a person, especially during that period in time. So I would say, you know... Um, mid 80s late 80s and early 90s right when, when that first came out and really the concept of hacking then is is quite different than what it is today uh today you see i think you see a, a wide variety of different actors and various reasons for why they why, why they choose to hack and back then you know hacking was not really you know something to do for fi financial you know gain or anything towards that effect uh and, and I thought the man, I thought the uh, manifesto did a really um, a, a good job of preserving, I guess, that landscape at that time, and the mentality that you know it's uh, it should be a free world. Uh, you know, if you want to call it anarchist, uh, it, it's very much in that vein. Uh, the idea that you know information should be free for everyone. So um, I, I really uh, I really like it. Uh, I mean, I reread it again, <laughs> or at least parts of it again. And, uh, you know, it, it really did highlight, you know, some of those aspects of uh, why 
so going back to my personal history, I, I was a political science major. <laughs> and, you know, if you know anything about political science, uh, most people are communists anyways, or socialists. So it, uh, it certainly resonated with me and uh, what, why I had gone down, you know, that track at that time. So manifesto uh, is a trigger word there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's right, comrade. <laughs> so any comments from uh, you, uh, Neil or Spencer? <clears throat> oh, for, for me, uh, the, one of the first sort of essays that I wrote, so the Hacker's Manifesto was certainly one of them, but uh, the Declaration of Independence of Cyberspace by John Perry Barlow, that was, uh, that was one that um, I found a lot more high-minded and uh, and spoke more to uh, to me about how uh, like e even today like you know when we when we talk about cybersecurity we 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 tend to associate that strictly with enterprise but the idea that uh, that cyber like that it, the internet is literally just it's actually people uh, that's less true now it's much more corporate of course on the internet but the people still use it and uh, and from a cybersecurity point of view. Uh, you know, chances are my my laptop, even given my job, is much more vulnerable uh, <laughs> than uh, and, and and thus I'm much more vulnerable uh, than um, than these companies are. Uh, and it, you know, um, I like the idea that uh, cybersecurity is also for the individual, um, and uh, and and that's part of what the uh, uh, Barlow's piece uh, spoke to. I I first read that uh, actually in, in this book, which is a collection of all these essays. Oh, cool. uh, and uh, it includes that one uh, and then uh, a bunch of other ones, but uh, most of these are all published online anyway. Uh, I bought this from, oh, what was the name of that uh, computer bookstore on 17th years oh, ago? Oh, that used to be there. Uh, yeah, no, I, rem I remember. Right across from Model Milk, actually. <laughs> yeah, no, I, yeah, no, I remember. It's unfortunate. Uh, books have kind of gone the way of the, of the dodo uh, and everything is uh, digital, right? So... But that was a great uh, store. Oh no, uh, I remember it. Uh, yeah, it was like the only store that carried uh, a lot of tech tech books at the time. So yeah, it was the number one place to go when you wanted to, you know, get a handbook on Unix or something something obscure that no one else carried. Right. So. Yeah, I ran into Theo the Rat there once. <laughs> oh really? Oh wow! Wow, the guy who did BSD or Open BSD. He he was uh he was the guy that uh invent well I shouldn't say invented but he was one of the uh the guys that was fundamental in Open BSD right so and uh, and a, and a personality to like a, a definite I, personality in the community. <laughs> I, I've never I've never had the pleasure of meeting him and I hope I do but uh, yes no I, I have heard so uh, Spencer any comments on Hackers Manifesto or uh, anything to add to it? Well, you know, it reminded me a lot of the, the first time I would have downloaded and read that would have been, I guess, in the mid-90s. And where I was, we didn't really have access to the Internet. So I would have downloaded that off of a bulletin board somewhere. And uh, and along with that was uh, another book that reminded me of was the Anarchist Cookbook. Oh, right, right. And yeah. it was kind of, you know, more like instructions on how to do a lot of uh, nefarious things. And there was some of it was hacking, some of it was phone freaking and Oh yeah, no. You know? I uh, I I remember uh, I remember that book, and I even remember trying to get the ingredients for a smoke bomb. <laughs> uh, just just because I was playing around, I'm thinking, oh, I can make I can make a smoke bomb and be a ninja. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I felt like none of the other guys at school would have access to information like this. You know, I was like well, one of the few people that that used a computer to talk to other computers and download information. And oh yeah, you know, this is 
you know, really coveted information you couldn't get at the library back then. Oh yeah, no, I, I hear you. You know, uh, it, it, it certainly is nostalgic in some ways, right? You realize that it's like, oh wow, that was 20 plus years ago. <laughs> so it's like, or actually close to probably 25 years now. Uh, getting old. <laughs> uh, okay. So, uh, Michael, any, uh, comments on you from you on the, uh, hackers manifesto? Um, I read that probably around 96, 97. Um, when I had this startup with some business partners and they were all some pretty broad thinkers and we had, um, in our corporate office, which was in Edmonton, just off white Ave really hip, great place to be if you're in Edmonton in a startup, which is not a good place to have a startup. Um, uh, we had this great giant library of all sorts of futurist uh, literature and uh, the Hacker's Manifesto uh, was something we talked about a lot. But the funny thing was, this was a, a point in my career where um, I did not know or care about security. Um, I was a web developer I wanted to create cool web applications. We're doing knowledge management stuff. And so the hacker's manifesto for me was more like a maker's manifesto. It was a, it was about information wanting to be free and about, and for me wanting to build systems that allowed people to create, organize and discover information. A funny thing. I turned out to be a librarian. Uh, uh, So, you know, a point in my career now where um, the word hacker has a totally different connotation. It's kind of interesting. Uh, no, I, I completely agree. Uh, I guess with that in mind, then uh, like number two on the list we have is uh, Ghost in the Wires by Kevin Mitnick. Um, I've now, to be honest, I've never read his book uh, and I'm not trying to discredit him or, you know, in any way talk negative about him. Uh, I mean, he's obviously done really good for himself, but I guess in my mind, when I think of uh, Kevin Mitnick, I think of social engineering and, you know, and freaking, uh, although freaking has kind of gone again uh, into obscurity now, uh, although at that time, freaking was probably more, more important than actual computer hacking. So that's why I put it on the list. Uh, I mean, he was definitely a controversial person back in the day. And he, I think, is the iconic symbol of what a hacker was back then, uh, breaking into systems, doing uh, malicious things. Uh, but, you know, in, in I think the same way that the Hacker's Manifesto talks about, he wasn't really doing it for financial gain. He was doing it more because he could, and he was doing it more for, for cred. So um, not sure how everyone else feels about it. Uh, if, if, if you have any comments, uh, I mean, please uh, feel free to to share it i think it's a nice snapshot in time but uh i mean there wasn't really laws against a lot of the things that he was doing then you know law enforcement knew whatever he's doing was wrong but it was hard to figure out exactly how was it wrong and then Mm -hmm. you know laying an actual conviction and that would have been really difficult Mm -hmm. well that's why they kept him in prison for a year (laughs) without charges because as far all it took all it literally took was for the uh, for um, the prosecution to put forward that if he got within arm's reach of a phone, he could start World War III. Those were the words that were used, and that allowed them to put him in jail for a year without knowing why he should be in jail. 
It was, yeah. it was pure. Now, I'm not going to argue that what he did was good or bad. What I'm going to argue is that is not the proper response. I was going to say, yeah, that's uh, that's not the yeah, that's not the procedural way of justice. Period. Yeah. So I agree. Yeah. But uh, I mean, but without a doubt, like, uh, I don't think I if I was in the position that. The various state agencies were in i don't know if i would think otherwise either like i think i would yeah. probably have done the yeah. same thing yeah yeah you're grasping at straws not knowing you, what not knowing what i know now is well exactly funny. but you're I, I mean i get it right i mean you feel helpless and you know that this guy's doing something bad but you don't have a, a written law to really kind of you know pin it on him so to speak still yeah. i mean it is dangerous you can't just let you know can't just let some you know like guy you know walk around with the freaking you know semi-automatic uzi in the middle of you know downtown calgary just because he wants to right uh you, you don't know what his mental facilities are you know maybe he is capable of you know self-containing himself but on the off chance do you really want to take that that you know thought into your mind and let it happen well it's so, I, but but the, the difference there being is of course there there there, there is established law for dealing with that yes, right yes, uh, yes, so yes, it was, yes, it's, you're right it was right, just this moment right. where uh yeah. Where and it wasn't just Kevin Mitnick, of course. You, there was no. there was a large group yeah. of people. You had Captain Crunch, also was one of those freakers yeah. at the time, yeah. Uh, yeah. and uh, uh, and then some of the emerging cult, uh, cult of the Dead Cow and like the, yeah. those hacker groups, like and 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 they played in and this is this is and we'll get this when we get to hackers but uh, <laughs> hackers like laid it out bare they're like we have no idea how to deal with this as a, and they knew it as a menace. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. So I think. Um, uh, so, you know, in the late nineties, I was one of the people who put my email signature free Kevin. Um, uh, and I had also at the time been reading 2600 and frack and lots of other underground zines. And, uh, there was ongoing dialogue and writing by him and his friends. Um, and if you read that, I, there's a story, um, that I think is a different perspective about, um, that is different than the story we're telling today. Uh, I think the greatest testament to the fact that he's a social engineer is that many people consider him a hero, a professional, or that he was wrongly prosecuted. And the, the misjustice that occurred that he was over prosecuted to the mm -hmm. point of persecution. Uh, he was a criminal. He committed crimes on top of crimes and Many people argue, well, it was for fun. It wasn't for profit. He didn't steal from people. Uh, okay, whenever you do an incident response, what is the cost to your organization? And that's real money, real money. And even back then, my own systems. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's selling stuff now. It's actually, if you can see what the business card actually is. Yeah. You know, in Alberta, you need a license for those. <laughs> uh, no, you need a license to carry them outside yes, of your home. This is true. <laughs> they, they are not explicitly illegal, but we have uh, some very interesting legislation in the province yeah. concerning those. And I only I know one person in the stream who has a sales license for demonstration of them, so he can legally hmm. carry them as long as he demonstrates. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Very um, interesting. Uh, our legislation is very interesting. Anyways, um, I think when we start uh, later on, if we uh, talk about some podcasts, um, I'll come back to this entire theme of 
how we're perceiving cybercrime and cyber criminals. And there's a tendency uh, for our profession to hero worship. Um, uh, and I don't, I'm not sure that it serves the purpose that it did 10 years ago, 10 years ago. Um, I don't think there is anything served by, um, completely isolated or stigmatizing, um, uh, every aspect of cybercrime because we didn't have frameworks for dealing with it. And today I think it's actually biting us in the ass. Absolutely. Uh, I, I agree with that comment. Um, so with that in mind, Oh, there we go. Oh yeah. Chris is saying, uh, favorite security book, uh, cuckoo's egg by uh, Clifford Stahl. <laughs> I've, uh, I've never read it myself. Uh, I've read, uh, I guess the synopsis and things of that nature for it, but, uh, yeah, no, uh, again, you know, uh, it's one of those things we, 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 we had to keep a short list so that we're not going to, we're not going to have a three hour live stream. So we might have, we might have, we might do a part two of this and then Chris, uh, we're going to try and get you on as well. So, uh, once that happens, we, we can, uh, we can definitely dig into that. So moving on, uh, I think to, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to talk about these two, uh, together. So 2600 magazine and frack, I think were fundamental. They were they were the biggest. I think the two biggest elements uh, during the '90s that really uh, helped um, cultivate. I think hacker culture, not just hacker culture, but uh, just the the idea that you know there there was this um, there was this element even beyond IT, and you know you had this group of highly intelligent and skilled professionals. Like that, that we're taking technology and, and understanding it really at the core and its heart. And I think that's what uh, 2600 and even FRAC uh, represent. I mean, obviously, there was some other articles in it, but, you know, a lot of it really, really is, um, I, I, I want to say cerebral, right? It, it wasn't just a matter of talking about, you know, oh, this is Windows or whatever, or this is Unix. It actually delved into, you know, the, the bare bones of it, which, which even, you know, people today uh people today you know talk about this it's today it's still a big thing right so uh so com comments from uh from the peanut gallery <laughs> well first off i just get a kick out of the you the the fact that you called them professionals because they oftentimes weren't uh you're, you're right you're right or, or rather we have no way of knowing because it was all anonymous Right, uh, right. Like, were they professionals? Yeah, most likely. Uh, yeah. But we, we have no attribution uh, during that time. Uh, we found out later that a lot of these people were kids that, but they mm -hmm. were highly intelligent, mm -hmm. highly motivated uh, mm -hmm. to have fun. Like they were just mm -hmm. motivated mm -hmm. purely by exploration. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and all of them had first mover advantage. That's ultimately mm -hmm. what it came down to. Right. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, the, again, we're going to get to this when we start talking about TV <laughs> and Mr. Robot, but you know that there are, there are guys like uh, the, the, the evil villain in, in, uh, in Mr. Robot who, you know, may not be evil, but they, they you know, they're the CEOs today, but they were probably, uh, uh, you know, kids sitting in a, in a room somewhere doing it for the lulls. So. Oh, you're right. I mean, it was, uh, it was curiosity uh, that, that, you know, I don't want to say force them that that encourage them to really delve in. Uh, you know, it, it really kind of plays into like even what um, uh, Steve uh, Wozniak, uh, what he was doing even in the seventies. He was reading in you know manuals on chips and you know, 
I mean, he was an engineer even before he was an engineer. And, you know, he was trying to figure out how, how to uh, shrink basically what looked like a mainframe computer down into like one, you know, box that could sit on your desk. So uh, I feel like that was really the spirit of, you know, the, these types of uh, e-zines and magazines at the so time. I, I just got to point this out. So I just uh, brought up issues of frack and I went to the, to the year of the first one I ever read, which is in 92 uh, off a, um, a BBS I cosis upped. And look, I didn't know the term pone <laughs> went back that far, man. <laughs> yeah, doesn't do. Yeah, like, no, does that. doesn't that's frack world news, right? Oh, it means something totally different. Yeah, yeah, because the oh, idea yeah, of, right. of the idea of owning a box didn't happen until after yeah, hackers. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. I think it was around that time that people started about talking about owning a box. Um, yeah. Like like uh, this would have been late '90s, early 2000 when you had things people saying things like ownzerd. Uh, with with zeros instead of O's and yeah, more of an IRC stuff. thing. Yeah, it was much more of an IRC thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No. Oh, uh, what I think about these uh, zines is uh, they created a community at a time when uh, there really wasn't any media representation of of uh, computer security or anything about computers mm -hmm. for that matter, other than total nerds at a university or a, you know IBM or someplace. So these okay. are like real regular people that are fostering a real community. Mm -hmm. through this zine and their distribution is digital they're not uh you know tied into the traditional publication of a magazine so and so they got it all across the country and so it kind of established a whole you know way of communicating and talking about this and and normalizing it for so many people that didn't have access to a whole university lab no, uh, I, I agree with your comment about, uh, you know, creating groups. I mean, I know several friends that, you know, uh, eventually became a, a part of a team, you know, <laughs> just based on the fact that, you know, they got together at uh, DEF CON or, you know, uh, through, uh, you know, and they shared information, you know, with, uh, you know, through IRC or, you know, uh, bulletin boards back back in the day. Right. So, I mean, this was all really a, a part of that culture and that, um, I guess, that way of life back then. So. And it's and it's and it's funny how the um, the narrative throughout the '90s and the uh, from the media when they're when they're talking about hackers, uh, it was always that they're asocial or antisocial. Uh, that you know they 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 tend to have uh, myopic views at best of of humanity, which like the hacker community wouldn't have existed if it was asocial and had a myopic <laughs> view of like they, they they right away acknowledge that like whatever it is that's going to make us great we have to do it together right yeah. Yeah. this is the idea that knowledge must be free and that they 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 pass this knowledge amongst each other yeah there's the the whole like you know you have to earn the knowledge idea in in hacker culture right you can't just show up and ask a question right you have to kind of have to prove yourself at all times um mm -hmm. but the, the, none of that is antisocial. uh yeah uh, it's very it's all very pro-social so i found that i found that really weird because uh you know once i started getting to know people in in it like none of like every one of them was not anti so and also you know what you know what a lot of it people do in their spare time they play social games role-playing right. games board that's right. games that's right that's right <laughs> 
That's right. That's right. Oh, and uh, look at that. We got a comment from Jim. What about IRC? <laughs> so, uh, no, uh, I agree with Jim. Uh, I miss IRC dearly. Uh, I remember spending late, you know, many late nights on IRC, either chatting and or um, maybe I shouldn't say it, but downloading uh, downloading music, various things uh, at that time. So, uh, uh, yeah, no, I, I uh, you know, in some ways, I kind of feel sorry for some of the... Uh, some of the newer kids uh, that are in cybersecurity that have never experienced that. I'm not saying that they aren't talented. I'm not trying to take away, you know, anything that they, they are, their abilities. I'm just saying that, you know, if they had experienced that, maybe they'd have a slightly different outlook, uh, which I wish I could share with them, I guess. Right. So, um, so uh, IRC has been replaced by Discord in the modern context. <laughs> well, here's, Discord here's and ours. Slack. So, uh, you know, oh, Slack yeah, and Discord, uh, they, they, they certainly have a, uh, the IRC feels so uh yeah can you slap I, someone with a trout that's <laughs> <laughs> oh my god oh man uh and then yeah ryan he actually brought up the uh the next book we were going to talk about neuromancer by william gibson uh you know honestly i feel like that book is actually possibly the pinnacle of what pushed i'm going to say cyber culture or uh cyberpunk culture right to the forefront uh, and we and we see it referenced even in you know various movies, uh, as you know Neil had mentioned. Uh, obviously, hackers they uh, they actually pay homage to him quite quite well in it by uh, naming the computer they hack into the Gibson. Uh, so, and you know honestly, the Matrix. If you know if you guys watch the Matrix trilogies, I mean you know, there's a lot of nice parallels. I mean even the Matrix, the concept that the Matrix is in Neuromancer. Uh, so really, I mean, you know, what he wrote back in, what is this, 19, I think, 85 or 84. 86. 86. Um, you know, it, it's shaped, I think, a lot of what we see even in popular culture today. So, um, and I mean, you know, Neuromancer was just one of those books. I mean, he wrote several other ones and he defined, he defined what cyberspace was. Like he created the word cyberspace. Uh, so he, he, I feel like is kind of, if you want to call him not quite the grandfather, but the godfather of, of that whole, I think, counterculture at, at that time and even today. So I, uh, I, I think you hit the nail on the head by uh, referring to countercultures or subcultures. Uh -huh. uh, a heavy, heavy theme in Neuromancer is that, um, you know, if you live in a world that's driven by information, um, in his world, there's giant corporations, but, um, there's just as much power in the hands of one young drug addict, uh, who's the protagonist, um, and a band of misfits as there is in winter mute, the giant, all powerful, all seeing mm -hmm. computer system. Uh, and that goes through, uh, many of his novels, he's always looking for these interesting things that are happening in little niche areas. Um, you know, um, Russians who collect old uh, Timex Sinclair computers for art projects or in virtual light where he envisions augmented reality, but it's for these geolocated art projects. You can only see the art in augmented reality when you're physically co-present and then we ended up with this whole series of augmented reality games um in the early 2000s mm -hmm. um it's i think he's always captured um 
some sort of distilled essence about culture and its use of information and then just sort of weaved in all these cool subculture elements. Mm-hmm. I agree. I agree. Sorry, Neil. Uh, I know you want to make a comment there. So no, just, oh, no, no. just agreeing, oh, okay. just agreeing. Oh, okay. The, uh, okay. yeah, Neuromancer, I mean, the word cyber existed, but I mean, it didn't exist in the popular lexicon until after he put out that book. Uh, yeah, the idea of the matrix, uh, all of our pop culture references to everything online is comes mm-hmm. from that book. Yeah. I agree. I agree. Spencer, and, uh, any, it, it, oh, sorry. Yeah. No, Spencer. Yeah, I was going to say. Spencer, any, uh, any additions or comments you'd like to make? Well, I'll be honest. I don't even remember if I've read that book. <laughs> Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's cool. That's cool. Okay. I'll put it on the read list. Oh, yeah. No. Uh, and yeah, for, for anyone uh, that's out there watching, uh, you know, please, uh, you know, make any comments on Neuromancer, uh, you know, how it affected you. Uh, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll certainly, uh, we'll certainly discuss it here. Um, with that in mind, uh, I think I want to, uh, I want to move on to the next book here. So Snow Crash by Neil Stevenson. And Neil actually recommended this, and uh, I, I I couldn't agree more. Actually, uh, there's uh, one really interesting uh, aspect of uh, Snow Crash. Well, just Neil Stevenson's stuff in general that he talks about that you know resonates today, and that's cryptocurrencies. Uh, he he laid out and he was talking about cryptocurrencies in that world in his in his um, fictional world. Uh, you know, and this is like I think it's 1990. Two is it or ninety three somewhere in that in that in that era? So it's later than that. I think it's ninety. Well, maybe it? that's about right. Okay, but uh, I know it was it was uh, newer than two thousand three. Oh, is it okay? But um, that doesn't yeah. sound right either, though. <laughs> I, I thought it was in the nineties myself, but uh, I mean, I'll, I'll admit I haven't read the book in myself. Uh, I've I've only known through synopsis and through uh, other pieces of literature that reference it. But uh, yeah, the thing that really got me was uh, how he, he kind of talks about like the cryptocurrency. That, that was the thing that kind of awed me. I mean, there's obviously other elements in it that he he's taken, you know, like Neuromancer to like another level, just kind of like how you said, Neil, he's uh, you know, he's, he's kind of just shown, you know, how far sci- uh, that whole cyberspace, the whole concept of cyberpunk has progressed. So um i'm not sure maybe you know what i'm gonna leave this to you to kind of you know talk a little bit about it one one thing i love about snow crash so definitely cyberpunk was what neuromancer was but uh so it was 92 that that book was written so okay uh so the punk movement in 92 was not the punk movement that he started writing about in the early 80s right so the early 80s punk uh movement was Mm-hmm. largely different from the not that there isn't some sort of direct link my, mm-hmm. my all my friends are in punk bands so i know <laughs> a bit a little bit of a punk but uh the uh what's what i find interesting about snow crash is that it's not cyberpunk it's cyber prep it's mm-hmm. very preppy it definitely plays on this idea that we see today of of the apples of the world where everything is very shiny and mm-hmm. not chromed but plastic uh if anybody's played the the pc game mirror's edge uh mirror's edge also has that same sort of preppy uh everything is very clean and hygienic 
whereas in in the cyberpunk everything is dystopic and mm-hmm. dark and dirty whereas here it's hyper clean in the same way that like the stormtroopers uniforms are hyper clean and and in in, in okay, the Empire, yeah. right uh, oh i think you cut out there neil uh, lost audio yeah we lost your audio neil oh you did uh, oh no, there you are you're back audio. you're back okay um the uh where did you lose me just out of curiosity uh i think it was yeah we only it's lost like a little stormtroopers yeah. and then stormtroopers okay the uh so but ultimately uh he goes into politics a lot more in in snow crash mm-hmm. and this is where uh, all of a sudden he he traces that uh the, the lineage of these very small uh what essentially are city states from homeowners associations so he actually like he he looked at the law in California on on homeowners associations mm-hmm. and how very close they are to being uh, sovereign states in and of themselves now because they're able to uh, have their own police forces. They're allowed to have uh, to to make uh, very very specific uh, uh, policy decisions on land use. Uh, so like, and he's just like, imagine if they're all just city states now, right? Uh, and they're owned by corporations. So now you're a citizen of a corporation because it just you happen to live. In a in a in some in a homeowners association group, uh, and then uh, and then how he talks about uh, like how, like the, uh, um, the the small cultures and communities that uh, I think we can relate to a little easier, knowing what we know now. Whereas mm-hmm. if you were to read Neuromancer, you're like that that world doesn't bear no. any resemblance to the world we live in. Whereas Snow Crash is a lot closer to the world we live in. It was amazing how he would tie uh, cultures to franchilettes, as he calls them. So mini franchises, everything was a franchilette and they all had a three ring binder. Three that ring binder. And <laughs> yeah, that was And what I thought was, I didn't know if it was flattering or, or insulting the way he describes Canada. Canada is like this free state, but it's one giant highway with people parking their RVs on both sides forever. <laughs> And it's sort of like, is that our rugged, natural <laughs> nature in the future? Is is an RV park for the Americans fleeing who want freedom? I I don't know. I, I, I can I can tell you right now that my brother lives that way, and he has for close to twenty years. So uh, I was going to say, yeah, that sounds like a certain few people I know myself, uh, friends, friends, parents mostly, but. Uh, yeah, the idea of oh, we're going to retire, sell our house, and just live out of an RV, <laughs> just traveling. It's like okay, sure, why not? But so, but the thing is, like you can, the the idea that uh, you know, so there's this free state where people are just living out of their little trailers, but still connected, right? Still, yeah, yeah. Like uh, and 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 think like mm-hmm. if they if they have smart devices in their in their like oh my god, my house has been hacked. Right. Right. Yeah. No, I agree. No, that's uh, you know what, it's a good synopsis on on the um, on, on the book. So def- definitely appreciate uh, your input. Uh, with that, then I guess uh, maybe a Cryptonomicon. So I'm not as familiar with that either. So uh, I I included this in the in the list because I have the job today because of that book. Really, like, I am. I I my so I I read that book when I was 19 years old, mm-hmm. uh, and I was working you know, just sort of IT-ish type jobs. Um, and uh, I, I I read that and I was like, oh, this is the stuff I want to do, right? Because I was already familiar with things like the Hacker's Manifesto and, and all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. And and, mm-hmm. and this is what I, when, when we were talking earlier about 2600 and Frack, 
where the people that were writing in those were you know, unknown and we called them professionals because we knew what they were doing. Mm -hmm. But when I read Cryptonomicon, what I saw was those people who had successfully transitioned to right. be business people, right? right. Uh, and uh, interestingly enough, uh, the the one of the characters in, in Cryptonomicon was a librarian who got into crypto. So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I just, I, I, I'm not sure. I, have you ever read the book, Michael? Because I think yeah, you'd yeah, actually yeah. get I, I, uh, I don't like the book. Um, I think it's poorly written. I think especially in the later half, he just rambles and has unfinished sentences. And it's clearly he's rushing. Maybe he had a deadline with his publisher. But there's a bunch about the book I do love. Um, and much of it foreshadowed the explosion of interest in statistics, data mining, and machine learning. So core to the novel is this concept of um, if you just have enough data, you can analyze the statistics and then you can predict anything. And so, you know, there's this sort of um, uh, character who's, uh, what's the guy in World War II who broke Enigma? I just blanked on his name. Turing. Oh, Turing. Turing. Yeah. There's this no. sort of Turing-like character and he's, He's like, it's you know, Turing like it is Alan. It is, Turing. I know, but they don't call him Turing, do they? Yes, they do. Yeah. Do they? Yes. Oh, what am I? I'm, anyways, he's, he's, I, I, there's a scene in the book where he's like, you know, I can hear the footsteps on the pavement outside. And if I could just record it all, we could analyze it. We could tell the difference between every single person uh, outside just by that data. And yep. he, the thing is, he's right and he's wrong. We've got all sorts of problems where machine learning can't actually, it doesn't matter how much data you've got, you need a model. Um, and in some cases, there's not enough of a pattern. Um, and so there's parts about this book where I was like, oh, this is so much wishful thinking. It's freaking cool though. And many of the ideas, yeah, we can do it. There's also a, a, a great sort of, cyber aspect of the book in that uh, Tempest technology figures in. So Tempest technology is um, where uh, you either want to block radio signals or read them. So, you know, uh, in the States as part of intelligence, they could pull up a van and if you've got a computer monitor TV, they could read the faint amounts of the signal uh, that is still done today. Everything from reading keyboard uh, wireless keyboard signals um, there was an update to open SSH years ago because somebody's like, holy crap, we can, when you're entering your password, that's sent packet by packet. We can measure the timing in between that. And statistically, we can guess which letter it is more accurate than 50%. So we can actually keep, we can narrow the field of guessing your password. So then they changed open SSH's password login mechanism to say, we're going to just send those all in one batch. So there's no timing measurement. Um, and literally cryptonomicon was foreshadowing all of that mm -hmm. statistics. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Fun funnily enough. Okay. So I've, I've read cryptonomicon in, in its entirety, like really actually more times than I can count, um, which is, a, which is saying a lot for such a tome. Uh, but the uh, funnily enough, um, that uh, the, the, the whole uh, measuring footsteps thing, uh, you're right in that it's wrong, but the person who said it isn't Turing. It was one of the main characters of the book who's 
an autistic kind of eccentric person who just rambles. And this is, this is part of the problem with the book is that you're reading most of the book through the eyes of an autistic character who tends to ramble. Um, in fact, there's a part in the book where they say, don't give him any coffee or else you won't be able to stop him. And then he takes a drink of coffee and then you are on the same ride that everybody else is. And you go along for that ride. So I just misread the writing style. Oh no, no he's he he's he's a long-winded writer. Yeah, 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 yeah. But he's, he uses it to his advantage in this book because he's writing from the perspective of people that don't know when to shut up uh, and tend to say weird things. Uh, and and so especially when you start, I don't want to talk about the book too much, but especially when you start going back and forth between the two time periods, you really notice the difference between his writing styles because he writes differently for. Uh, the grandson than he does for the grandfather. So Neil, you you don't have to shut up because you know literally the solution to people who talk too much and too long is you Mute. put them on a live stream. That's exactly right. I was going to say that's, that's, that's exactly the, right. That's why we're all here. <laughs> oh don't, man! Don't tell me there's an outlet for this because you'll never shut me up. <laughs> oh, there is. It's right here. <laughs> Okay, uh, Spencer. I don't know if uh, I don't know if you want to comment on any of that. Uh, if you've read the read those books or uh, no, I haven't read that book. But uh, you know, it sounds like that might have been something that's contributed to this huge burst in the interest in, in data mining within the business. I was even thinking about uh, a poster that I saw at my, my office before the the, uh, the whole work from home situation. Um, it was called the uh, the Data Manifesto. There was a poster on one of the uh, one of the analyst floors at our office. It just kind of went on and on about you know how all this data needs to be free and everybody should be able to mine it. And so there's there's a huge investment in data mining and and uh, a lot of people that are outside of IT you know mining into this data just to try to to progress the business. So you know it's definitely uh, pretty relevant. Mm -hmm. Oh, and there, there's Michael. He he pulled it up. The data manifesto. <laughs> data cannot be owned. <laughs> the natural habitat of data is the commons. This is a lot like the hacker man. Yeah, well, I was gonna say, yeah, uh, no, very much so. Very and much so. and what's what I find very different is, I think I categorically disagree with every one of those statements. Yeah, I, I did too. As a security person, I, I didn't really agree with the poster. But. Actually, not even as a security person. Uh, so, for example, this idea that data, I'm just going to say this, maybe I don't know if what kind of conversation this is going to start, but data cannot be owned by anybody. Uh, no, that that is that is categorically wrong. Uh, because if I didn't exist, data about me wouldn't exist. Uh, so how, how can you say that the things about me aren't owned by me? Hmm. Yeah, how can you have a, a strong legal concept of privacy? Yeah, at least in the Western legal yeah, in, tradition, yeah, in Western, with, yeah. without saying data's owned, because then yeah. what I really want to do is have a foundation of privacy, is saying privacy is controlling the data about me because I own the data about me. The data, exactly, yeah. mm -hmm. exactly right. Yeah, and 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 so this nat the natural habitat of data is the commons. Uh, so that this is this is this is only true in a world where. Uh, where, where data is no longer ephemeral. So in a, in a pre-internet era, 
uh, data was ephemeral, right? You'd walk down the street having a conversation with your friend and that that was, it might as well have never have transpired. But now our phones will pick up that that conversation as we're walking by smart media billboards, they'll pick up that conversation. Uh, you know, somebody uh, talking to their friends over their headphone might pick up your conversation and that could get recorded. Um, to say nothing of the fact that, you know, you're, where where you stand in the world is being recorded by video cameras on the street and whatnot. So uh, you know the natural habitat of data is in the commons. I I, I would say that while true, I, I I'm saying that I, I would say that yeah. So what? <laughs> <laughs> that that doesn't that doesn't mean just because it happens to be in the commons doesn't give you uh, uh, rights to it. Um, I mean, like Michael said, privacy by definition is the ability for a person to dis determine what data flows from them. Um, right. my, my favorite example of that is uh, um, uh, porn stars and strippers. Uh, when, when somebody's like, you know, I, I have a sense of privacy, I don't want to show X, Y, or Z. It's like, th that's not the question. <laughs> you get to make the choice yeah. whether or not to show those things, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, so uh, no, that was great. You know what? That was a great topic, and uh, you know, Michael, uh, I think we can we can certainly have another live stream just on that. So, uh, well, you know what? Ryan's even got another topic, and he's like, you know, we totally missed uh, video games and hacking. And until what was it? Watch Dogs came out. I would have said, ah, there's nothing of any value other than the Thief. word hacking game. Thief, yes, Thief is a hacking oh game. God. The fact yeah. that it's lock picking is irrelevant. It is a hacker game, right? Because you you walk in there, you have to determine even Metal Gear Solid, uh, any any of these stealth games where like you watch how the the people walk around, and then you have to like you know, hide and, and that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like those are all like whether you're sitting in front of a computer in the game hacking. I I, I think, I think you know the hacker mentality was. So um, just going back to our previous talk about Cryptonomicon, uh, one of our Twitch viewers. We actually have Twitch viewers, which is going to um, be interesting when I make my point about um, the impact of cybersecurity on popular media. Anyways, uh, says uh, yeah, Target. 10 years ago was able to predict when a customer is pregnant. Um, so mm -hmm. the, you know, these statistical methods, it's been a long time coming and uh cryptonomicon just foreshadowed the whole thing. Yep. No, I, uh, I agree. I agree. So um, I guess uh, before we go down into too many rabbit holes, <laughs> we better stay uh, somewhat on topic. So uh, our uh, next, uh, next category was uh, events and news. So uh, some of the biggest things that happened, I think, throughout the last at least 30 years, 30 plus years, uh, that really, I think, brought not just hacking, but IT into the forefront. Uh, and we kind of start off with the, the Morris worm back in 1988. And, uh, you know, there's even hints of it. Like, I think in Hackers, they kind of, the main character, they stole, I guess, some of his background from from the idea of what, what the Morris worm did back in 88. Uh, by infecting, uh, I think it was about 5,000 or 6,000 systems at the time. And uh, again, you know, it's one of those things. It, it was a different mentality back then. I think today what we use malware for, for financial gain and destruction, back then it was, it was really, uh, it, was, it was a different mentality. I mean, I remember reading an article on, you know, the creation of virus, is, uh, or they didn't even have a word for it. They didn't even call it a virus. But the idea that, you know, you could have a, a system 
or an application that replicated. And what it would do is check a system to make sure it was patched or upgraded to a certain level. And then the, if it wasn't, then the virus would go into action and, and, and patch the system. So almost, I think, contrary to what the idea of what we think about a virus or a worm today, back then was is it wasn't for uh, malicious intent. So uh, I, I don't know what you guys think, uh, but uh, I, I think that was probably, you know, one of the key key things that happened in history that, you know, probably uh, <laughs> probably put put to the foreshadow of you know what something like uh, a self-replicating program could do. Um, to what extent, though, was it understood by by the broader population of what happened, right? I mean, somebody reading the new would like, I mean, it being in 1988, I was nine years old. Uh, <laughs> so like, you know, I wasn't reading newspapers at the time. So I mean, I can read about it now. But I mean, what was mm -hmm. this like, like, at, like today, if you know, yeah. Equifax happens, everybody's like, mm -hmm. oh, Equifax got hacked. Okay, mm -hmm. I have. Some, but back in 88, nobody's gonna say, Mm -hmm. You know, a self-replicating bit of code brought mm -hmm. nobody, not a single person in the media is going to say, <laughs> yeah, that no. we're not selling that on tonight's news. You're right. You're right. It wouldn't have gotten the uh, press coverage that it would today. Uh, but uh, all the same, you know, from a historical standpoint, I think you're right. Uh, it, it, it definitely is a um, it's something looking back in history that you realize versus uh, what, what it what it probably meant back then. So. Um, and then the second one, so uh, Eternal September. Eternal uh, September. I, I do remember that actually. Uh, I don't know if I, I remember. I have to Google that this time. one. So that was when uh, it was AOL. I think it was AOL. They uh, they basically said, "All right, everyone, Usenet," and it was yes. like, "Tada, news groups." And yeah. then people so figured prior, out prior to 1993, September 93, um, the. Uh, the the online community on Usenet, um, yeah, and here's here's the story here. But the online community on Usenet got used to the fact that every fall, uh, university students would go back to school, have access to the internet, and start using Usenet inappropriately. Um, and uh, so this is the idea of netiquette and social norms on the internet come from. Uh, and then uh, yeah, come '93, AOL said, oh, we're going to start offering Usenet. To our subscribers and uh and now everybody on usenet was like oh that's it it's the end of the world um <laughs> but of course uh what this meant was more people were like so usenet was uh way more popular than the world wide web was at the time mm -hmm. uh and uh so when when in fact if you talked about the internet back then you were probably talking about usenet and not talking about what we would today call the internet as the World Wide Web. Uh, so once this happened, though, this, I mean, yeah, it's, it would have been annoying if you were a Usenet user, but at the same time, it got people using the internet. Now, college mm -hmm. kids, fine. Mm -hmm. uh, and they were just downloading porn uh, and uh, and games, I think, porn games. Yeah, yeah games, music. games. Uh, I don't think music at the time. No, nope, because we, we had music. Was, music. Yeah, yeah. Music definitely came later, though. Uh, yeah. I mean, Usenet is still, is still around. Uh, it's just not offered as a free service anymore when you sign up for, you know, some sort of internet service. Uh, but yeah, I know I remember back then is like you signed up dial up, you know, and I guess the inklings of ADSL when it first came out, uh, most ISPs would offer Usenet access to their news groups and yeah, you could literally download anything, uh, music, porn, video games, uh, movies. I furnished my first house in Calgary on Calgary dot for sale. 
Oh yeah, see there you go. So you actually used it for something useful. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. I mean, not saying it wasn't useful. I mean, you know, it's like I can remember, you know, watching movies that you know you pulled down from Usenet, right? So I I traded Magic the Gathering cards on on Usenet when oh, I was wow. in, in high school. Okay. Okay. So yeah, no. Uh, I mean, nowadays it's literally just um, yeah, you got private Usenet servers, and it's really for exchanging movies, TV shows things of that nature right so for people that for some reason think torrent is worthless i, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't understand it's yeah like, i'm just like you know torrent is a thing right like yeah, why are you yeah, using yeah, usenet yeah 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 exactly exactly so um okay so number three on our list though is windows 95 and i i agree and this is something i missed so i'm, I'm glad you know i think this was neil or uh, michael yeah. that uh, pointed it out and yes this was a very very pivotal event uh i vaguely well, and- remember it but, yeah, um, actually, and, and once I thought about it, I was like, "Well, hold on. Actually, it wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't the re- the release of Windows ninety five. It was an update to Windows ninety five right. that happened. I think six months later, mm-hmm. because that's when Internet Explorer was was installed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it was post that that uh, that they started doing the whole browser wars and and uh, mm-hmm. the. Mm-hmm. Um, Microsoft eventually had the class action lawsuit brought against them for mm-hmm. forcing people to use Internet Explorer by bundling it with the operating system that right. nobody that was the only operating system people <laughs> were buying at the time. Um, and uh, but uh, again, it's one of these things where all of a sudden the Internet is now available to more people. Uh, when I started using the internet, uh, I had to go out and buy a modem. I had to install the modem, which meant, uh, this was windows 3.1. So, uh, you had to figure Mm -hmm. out all your, uh, um, serial port settings and, and interrupts and, and everything like that. I was, I was 11 at the time. And (laughs) let me tell you, I remember to this day how complicated that was. Yeah. IRQ. Oh dude. Yeah. Interrupts. Oh yeah. No, Yeah. DMA and like it was oh, it was dude. just crazy. And, and you know sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say, but but then once Windows 95 came along with plug and play and yeah, uh and, that's and exactly what I was gonna say. <laughs> and then the uh and and uh and TCP IP integrated that's instead of using a separate yeah. Windsock. That's right, yeah, Windsock. Um so all of a sudden now it was literally I want to get on I just click a button and I have access, right? Um and uh and I think Windows I think a lot of those modems uh at that time, all cheap, cheap software modems started going into computers. Mm-hmm. So they'd, they'd even turn off the, the mm-hmm. dial-up sound. So it became just a, mm-hmm. not even a thing. You just click the button and then a couple moments later you were on the internet. You didn't, mm-hmm. it was almost seamless. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know. Right around talking- that time, the uh, ISPs around Canada were all offering like community access centers and, you know, buy a computer, get a free subscription to the internet. and. And all kinds of incentives like that. So I think there was a lot of collaboration, you know, with Microsoft and the ISPs to to kind of bring internet to the masses. And and Windows ninety five was was the train bringing it in. Yep. Yeah. yeah and and it worked. And that's the thing. It yeah. worked. Uh, so I was thinking about Windows ninety five from a different angle, and it's the one that we were discussing pre show. Um, so. In the first half of my career, I didn't give a rat's ass about security, even though I had read Frack going back years. Um, and I ended up being the victim of uh, more than a few incidents because of my ignorance and uh, bad attitude. And Windows 95 was probably the worst of it. So I was um, 
working on contract developing um pretty big software project to to write software to run a large virtual school um nathan if you're here the virtual school that you attended um and so i'm here you know i'm working from home i've got my little network with a hub and it's all hooked up to a cable modem it's all very fancy and you know there's no firewall or anything like that and uh one day and i and i've got a network share i got a shared folder windows 95 makes shared folders work so easy and there's no password and it's really easy for me to get files off my laptop and email them to my client and they can mount my file share and one day all the files were gone and uh then one day a file showed up in the file share while I'm trying to figure out where do these files go? And then I realized, okay. And, and I think um, I'm very proud of the good instincts I had because I didn't just think like a developer from that moment on. I didn't think, Oh, my files are gone. I better get them back from my backup. I thought they have all the data. What data is that? What privacy impact does it have? It's a school. And fortunately, the development database had nothing. So they got my FileMaker database. But I had to disclose to my client, which was also a very telling moment. And then it was only months later that I kept getting hit with ping of death. And so and that was a uh, Windows-specific thing where you send a packet with some overlapping fragments. The TCP IP stack can't handle it. And it blue screens on you. And that just... my computer kept blue screening as so I reinstalled it. And then I realized I started reading online and realized hackers. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I know. Totally, totally understand. Okay. So uh, number four on our list is uh, Melissa. Uh, you know, honestly, I think this was, and it was weird because I remember it. Uh, this got a lot of press coverage for what it was at the time. And it was really, it was kind of stupid, right? Because I mean, it was, uh, if I can remember, I think it was a, it was a macro, it was a macro virus in Windows, or sorry, in Microsoft Word. Word. Yeah. And I always thought it was kind of stupid how how it spread, but you realize it's like, well, if you're a user and you don't know any better, you're just gonna, you're just gonna click on it and randomly, boom, you're infected, and then it's gonna go through, you know, your address book and then send it out to the next fifty people or whatever. So, Twenty year later, macro viruses still work. And they do, and they still do today. So, um, but I do remember at the time this this was pretty pretty big news. So, um, and then moving along, so number five, there was the Internet DNS DDoS that was in two thousand two. Uh, I remember that very well because uh, at that time I was working at an ISP, and uh, yeah, I know we had customers that were complaining uh, that they couldn't access certain resources on the internet, and uh, yeah, you. You know, that, that was huge news because, I mean, they were getting hit. Uh, the, the DNS, um, like the root servers were getting hit. So, um, yeah, I think it was a period of three days or something like that where, yeah, customers kept on calling and like, oh, when are we going to get on the Internet? When are we going to get on the Internet? So, um, so this is kind of- all the IP addresses and you can use the Internet <laughs> just fine. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, it's, it's on a different scale and in a different direction, but... Um... DNS DDoSs are still with us. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. They're quite often used in in reflection attacks. Where, um, okay, say you want to flood a victim with a ton of traffic, 
mm-hmm. but you need to do it a um, symmetrically. That is, you want to send way more bandwidth to them than you or any one of the nodes sending traffic does. So you don't want to do the uh, low earth ion cannon garbage that um, is far less effective than it seems. Uh, so what you do is you do DNS lookups against vulnerable DNS servers and you just say, well, I need um, to look up something non-existent and then it sends you back mm-hmm. the list of root servers. Well, that's actually your request is this many bytes and the response is this many bytes, but you spoof the request because it's UDP. So you can just fire and forget. The server gets it and sends it back to the victim. You say, oh, the request is from the victim. And now you're sending this little list. Now, if you do that against a whole lot of servers, then you only, as the attacker, only need to send the request to all of those servers. And then they all concentrate the traffic back. Still occurs today. Um, The time that I first discovered this would have been about 2010. And I was in charge of um, a large public libraries. IT systems and had been logging all DNS requests for, for doing some security analysis. And then I, when I discovered it, I went back and found out we're misconfigured. We're vulnerable to this and people are using us on a day-to-day basis. And we were at the time, our bandwidth was saturated by 3 PM every day. We couldn't afford more. And so by going in here and going, Oh my God. We're literally throwing away bandwidth <laughs> for attackers to exploit us. Yeah. 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 I hear that. I hear that. Um, okay. So uh, just moving it along a bit. Uh, number six, Stuxnet. Uh, I think that actually this is probably one of the biggest ones that is completely underrated. Uh, I mean, it did get news coverage, but I don't think people understood really the impact of it. Uh, I mean, from, I think our perspective, as security analysts, we realized that, you know, this really um, kicked off, I think, the idea, not that, you know, it was the first time it was done, but, you know, first time done in, in a way that it was okay to attack a, a nation state's uh, critical infrastructure, that, you know, what I think was considered, you know, hands off, oh, we don't do that, is now it's okay. We've kind of rationalized, it's okay to attack an OT network. And, you know, completely, you know, whether it's uh, destroy a nation, a nation's, uh, let's say, you know, uh, energy grid, it's okay now, because uh, someone else did it. So now we've justified it. And we can, do, we can use that technology uh, for those purposes. So I think it's pretty, uh, I think it's pretty important. That's why I put it on the list. Um, I'm not sure if anyone else wants to chime in on the, how they feel about this. I was actually working for a public utility at the time. Uh, in the electricity sector, so it was very impactful where I was working. And uh, traditionally, uh, as anybody that's worked in Calgary cybersecurity, you know, there's always a pretty clear delineation between uh, IT and OT systems. You know, there's OT engineers and PLCs and HMIs, and and they are managed differently, completely differently than how we secure corporate IT assets, and it's it's not common. Prior to Stuxnet, it was not common for those two groups to really interact much. Mm-hmm. Uh, following that, we see CIS standards come in and other things that are really um, compelling the OT side to start bringing in these IT uh, cybersecurity practices. 
So I think it really instigated a, a really positive change for securing those OT systems in, uh, in, the, in our region. I can, I, I can tell you right now, as somebody who's currently walk, working on three different projects with three different clients, each with different OT, they still have not converged IT and OT. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and, it, and, and it's, uh, and Stuxnet is like, there's this, there's this part of me that every time I'm sitting down in front of my clients and, and they're, they're a little, uh, they're a little uh, le leery of like, oh, we don't want to touch our our OT networks, and they're, you know, all, all the very uh, all the very typical responses, which is, you know, operational technology is old, and if you touch it, it breaks, and so we don't touch it, we don't look at it. And I was like, okay, Stuxnet, and like they they have nothing, right? Like, it, I mean, it's it's difficult. I mean, you put them in a position where you you say the worst possible thing, and where where do they go from there? Obviously, but um, uh, the uh, yeah, it's it is still a problem, uh, and uh, uh, I don't know how it's not going to ever not be a problem because the problem is is that it's just a whole bunch of old stuff. Yeah, so. no, for sure. You're, you're muted, Mike. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I think there's an interesting aspect to Stuxnet um, in terms of media and the perception of cybersecurity. Um, Stuxnet comes along and the media portrays it as, oh, rah, 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 we somebody did something to the computers in an Iranian enrichment facility. That's a good thing. Uh, no one will confirm or deny there's no details. And in the meantime, Kaspersky who had gotten the samples because Stuxnet had actually started leaking out and was infecting unintended victims around the world, start saying, well, you know, this is a pretty big deal in terms of cyber war. And it really took like a full year cycle before the reporting in the media was, is this cyber war? What does that mean? Is this an espionage operation? And it's very clearly the US-Israel, but they're denying or not confirming it. And then another year goes by and then they stop denying it. And I don't know if they ever really confirmed it, but a number of US politicians have bragged about it. Um and, and that, to me, was really the interesting part, is this story changed the way mainstream media news outlets began to perceive and report on cybersecurity to the point that we're still talking about it, about Stuxnet, and then we it Stuxnet is compared to other things. Um, it's also part of the narrative of up until Stuxnet, it was in, if you're in the Western world, the other nations attack us. We don't do bad things. And this was sort of the, well, no, we all nation states hack other nation states. They have very deliberate agendas and they do, do covert things and information and information systems are part of those. No, I, I agree. Um, yeah, it's it certainly. I think it's it's one of those things that uh, that changed the landscape and the way we have to think. And uh, you know, hopefully one day <laughs> everyone will 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 agree with what we're saying today and uh, you know start uh, 
start considering uh, protecting their OT networks. Uh, similar to how maybe we're a more protecting. realistic uh, modern day James Bond will be a hacker. Very true. Very true. Very true. <laughs> So I think uh, critically important, so uh, what Stuxnet did to uh, identify holes in OT networks, I think CryptoLocker two years later uh, was even more significant in the sense that I think up until that point, um, usually hacking or hackers uh, or even script kitties, you know, I, I like to use script, script kitties because some of it, it really is like point and click stuff. Uh, I think up until that point, when you got infected by a virus, uh, home users, for the most part, didn't care. It didn't affect them in any way. And then all of a sudden, you know, there was this this thing that came along and started encrypting all their files and then holding it for ransom. Now, all of a sudden, you know, the financial game shifted from, you know, just attacking corporations to individuals. And it affected individuals now to the point where it's like, okay, uh, yeah, if you want your precious pictures, movies, music that you have on your hard drive, you're going to pay for them. Master's theses. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, right? Mm -hmm. Like um, mm -hmm. all your financial data because yeah. people are keeping everything yeah. in spreadsheets on their computer. Exactly, exactly. And really the the reality of it, it, it hasn't gone away. If, if anything, it's evolved. And it's evolved almost to a dangerous, uh, dangerous state right now. Uh, I even know a friend of a friend, I think it is, uh, just yesterday, uh, you know, reached out and said hey uh what do i do and i'm like well what kind, what variant is it and unfortunately i had to tell him uh sorry there's not really anything i can do uh my recommendation go buy a brand new clean hard drive install your os keep that uh encrypted one uh, tucked away so that one day, one day. someone someone figures out a, a, a decryption key for it you, you might be able to decrypt that data so um and unfortunately for him he lost i think it's two months worth of work because uh, the the one the last month's backup was on his drive and it got encrypted as well, so um, it's unfortunate. And uh, yeah, I honestly think that was one of the turning points for how those bad guys how they were financially driven, and, and now they've shifted it to the home user. So, um, okay, so uh, I wonder how they made money with malware before ransomware. Uh, click jacking. And yeah. ads, mm -hmm. ads, ad fraud. Mm -hmm. I mean, it just seems like you wouldn't make much. You'd have to have such a high volume of clickers. Exactly, exactly. So, you like, know, spam was, yeah, spam was probably the biggest thing, and I mean, spam still is, but uh, it's no. I don't think it makes nearly as much money as uh, ransomware. Spam's uh, not exploiting things like ransomware does. So, yeah. in two thousand and six, there was. Um, there was a guy who did click fraud and he published a picture of a check from Google AdSense for um, $500,000. And he's saying, and he, and he posted it cause he was laughing that they couldn't issue him a full check for what they owed him that month because their processes wouldn't write a check larger than 500,000. So they had to issue him two checks that month. And so what would happen back then is either through cross-site scripting, cross-site uh, request forgery, man-in-the-browser attacks, those little toolbars you'd get, um, a whole host of um, add-ons that would be added to uh, junk software. They would all have click jacking. And so they would click on ads fraudulently. Um, I did a bunch of responses to 
um, content management systems that would get infected. And they would add um, to the PHP a little invisible part of every page that literally resulted in um, anyone visiting the page would end up clicking on ads. They wouldn't know they were clicking, but, and people were making big bucks off of that kind of, um, that kind of fraud back in the, in the late mid to late two thousands before extortion became the main game. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I agree. Uh, so number eight on our list is, uh, Edward, Edward Snowden. Uh, I don't think there's really too much to say other than, yeah, you know, he exposed, uh, really, you know, nations that were actually spying on their own people. Uh, or not, not just that, but I mean, essentially, uh, I think all of a sudden, you know, personal privacy started to become even more important. I think really right after, uh, right after that time, he, he released those documents through WikiLeaks. Right. So, um, so there's 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 two angles to that. So there is definitely what he exposed and how it revealed to everyone that um, we're not just facing some hackers, that we're all being spied on by nation states and that there are no nation states not doing it. But there's an entirely different angle, which has got to do with the way media treated um, the topic of cybersecurity, because all of a sudden it wasn't just a couple of journalists like Krebs who were just struggling to get uh, their good journalism noticed. And it became a mainstream topic. Um, We had some of that because of WikiLeaks, but WikiLeaks always lacked a a degree of legitimacy um, in the eyes of the media. And I would argue justifiably Um, there's lots of interesting things that came out of that, but then Snowden comes along, man, the level of debate reporting and intense interest by the population and by journalists went way up. Um, and I think if Snowden had not done what he did the way he did, it might've been dismissed and it would have, uh, taken later dramatic events. So, you know, the way he, specifically took steps to say, look, I'm not going to possess the data. I'm only going to work with a few journalists. I'm going to distribute my loot amongst them. Um, Like if he hadn't done it in that exact way, not sure how the, I don't know. I don't think the perception would have changed. I think the narrative that the media um, decided to take on would have been different. I think, I think he right away under, so first off he was, he was he was afraid for his life. Uh, he he knew he was going against his own government and other governments, um, so he was obviously afraid, and 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 a smart guy. Uh, so you know he hedged his bets and he he's like I'm not going to hold on to this. I'm going to disseminate this information. So they 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 can't get us all. Uh, and and he and he and he chose. I believe he he he's he when he went through this he he chose good allies or allies that would help that allow him to shape the narrative uh i I think broadly speaking anybody who knows snowden uh your average person who knows snowden would probably call him a hero right i think you're i'm not saying that's right or wrong i'm just saying that i think broadly speaking snowden is seen positively uh 
I agree. I agree. I mean, he didn't do it for financial gain. If anything, uh, he suffered for it. Uh, but, you know, in his mind, he was trying to do something right for the people, for yep. for those affected. So, and and really, that 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 is the definition of a hero. I mean, there are there are good arguments against what what he did. Sure, and I, sure, I agree with sure. some of them, but uh, and there are certain people. Uh, and I'm thinking of uh, uh, can never pronounce his last name. Robert Bechtick, Bechtick, whatever. Oh, uh, yeah. But but generally speaking, a lot of uh, mm. uh, cyber professionals who have had military backgrounds are very anti-Snowden. Uh, yeah. I've, yeah, I've no, just, I've just noticed that like, generally speaking, if, yeah. if I'm a and, cyber and, professional who's yeah. anti-Snowden, he was yeah. most likely in the military. Yeah. You know, yeah. you know, if I were a U.S. citizen, I, I think. Trusting him if he was my coworker. What's that, sir? I would have a hard time trusting him if he were my coworker. Yeah. Yeah. I think if I was a U.S. citizen, uh, it would be, um, uh, it would be more difficult to form an opinion, but as someone who's not a U.S. citizen, uh, it's a net good. Um, I, it's, it's hard to see it. Even, I, I, you know what? Even if you are a U.S. citizen, is it's a net good because I mean, you know, it exposed what the government shouldn't be doing. Uh, I mean, honestly, uh, there, there's reasons why you know movies like V for Vendetta are out there. Uh, you know, and there's a comment in that. Uh, unfortunately, I should have. Why that is that not on our list? I know, I know, I know. And you know, honestly, we're gonna have to cut our list because we're we're starting to go over time. So, uh, we'll we'll have to have a second segment on you know half the movies that we've listed. But um, you know, the idea that yeah, you know, people shouldn't be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people because people are the reason why governments exist or are supposed to exist. So um, there, there's that aspect of it, and uh, I I fundamentally believe that too. So. Um, okay, so before I go too much into this, you know, we'll, we'll, we we should have another live stream on this conversation, right? Privacy laws and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So, uh, so number nine and eleven, I'm going to clump in together. Uh, that's the uh, the Yahoo data breach and the Facebook data breach, uh, and that was huge news just because of the sheer number of uh, user accounts that got uh, exfiltrated. And you know, there, I think we could also we could also group uh, Equifax in with that. I think. Yes, you're right. Equifax, uh, you know, that's the list goes on, honestly. And uh, you know, the one thing I'll point out is, you know, you can buy these compromised accounts in the dark web for like nothing. Like we're talking pennies, pennies. But the reality is, it's also you know hundreds of millions of records. So when you put that all you know math together, it's still you know a few million dollars worth of uh, accounts that you you can purchase. So. Shout out to Have I Been Pwned, by the way. <laughs> Everybody, make sure that uh, you use Have I Been Pwned to find is, out is, if your email address is. Is there anyone watching who isn't signed up to Have I Been Pwned? <laughs> um, and, you know, normally I'd be very supportive and help you grow, but as professionals. <laughs> you should, yes, as professionals, you should all, all, all have your Absolutely. every email account Absolutely. you've ever, Absolutely. ever used. Go through there. Absolutely. Go sign if, up now. Even if yeah, the account right. is long, even if the domain doesn't even exist anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I, 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 I want to oh, make sorry. just, sorry, I know we're going over, over but right. I want to make one little comment, um, mostly because Jim's watching. Uh, I Jim used to ask me to share with him um, password lists that I would generate for password cracking assessments I did. Um, I had quite a collection and the Facebook data breach made it so much easier for hackers in the Western world to make um, passwords are one thing, but making username lists um, 
it are much harder. And the Facebook breach gave us a good rich source of, oh, these are real names that aren't Western and millions of them. Literally to this day, I still use the password data breach. If I have to do a password assessment to generate usernames, um, it, 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 it was a game changer. Okay, for sure. Uh, so, uh, okay, going on to our list, going back to number 10. So WannaCry and Petya that kind of came out at the same time, although they are two different and then I, I i also put in comments uh marcus hutchins who helped stop wanna cry and i think that was huge uh in the sense that even today i think uh it was a few months ago uh wired magazine released an article uh with an interview from marcus hutchins and what what he was doing uh prior to that like he was he was a dark uh he was a dark hacker really like a dark web kind of guy that you know turned the corner and you know once he turned the corner you know he started doing good and one of the good things that came out of what he did was uh stopping wanna cry almost accidentally when you read his story it's pretty interesting because i think at the time everyone's like oh man this guy's uber amazing but then you realize that he kind of stumbled into it and it was a good thing i mean he's, i'm not taking any credit you know any credit away from him he's a very smart kid very very astute and you know obviously very skilled so uh but you know he helped stop that and that that was that was a huge threat back then uh every news outlet was picking it up and saying oh man how do we stop this this thing is spreading so fast and ridiculous and uh he was lucky enough to find that kill switch and uh you know stop it from spreading so i i know i know mike has read far more of these reports than i ever have but uh of the ones i have read uh when somebody is doing some sort of you know final analysis on on a on the process of detecting and, and dealing with these things, they're almost always, whoa, look what I found, right? Like it's all, it's only now that we're starting to get direct results from threat hunting to, to find, like it's always been by accident in the past because we weren't looking for these things in the past. Uh, um, so I'm going to state uh, an opinion that I believe is quite unpopular. Um, uh, the man's a criminal. Uh, he turned the corner for all of five seconds um, before he turned around. Um, and kudos to him for uh, sinkholing that domain. Um, it It is a method that other malware researchers use. Um, he didn't know what it was going to happen, but he still deserves the credit. He did it first. He did it quickly. And it had, it, it literally had a material impact around the world. Um, when that occurred, Krebs wrote an article and did some very good threat intelligence, digging and connecting dots, and wrote this article. Um, and the immediate reaction was negative, that you can't say this bad thing about this internet hero. And just because he was a hacker doesn't mean um, we should criticize him in any way. And I'm very clearly of the opinion that criminal activity is criminal. Um and it, we are uh, overwhelmed by the impact that criminal activity has. And there's too many people that are dipping their feet in both pools. I've read more than enough nonfiction stories that have firsthand accounts of people who by day are cybersecurity professionals and by night are raking in cash uh, in the cybercrime world. Marcus Hutchins made a detour away from it, but the way he tells a story, and there's a recent, um, uh, I think it's a Wired article that has an interview with him. Uh, you should go read it. 
The way he tells it is much like you see the first down accounts for many other cyber criminals. There's always someone else to blame. Vinny got him into it. If he just hadn't had that bad influence, I don't think we should be so inclined to let ourselves off the hook because many of our colleagues have a criminal background that they never got caught for. We shouldn't um, downplay that. And we shouldn't say, you know what? It's not that bad Um, because (laughs) our current state, it really is bad. Um, And so if he had been a cyber criminal 15 years before when he was a teenager, as opposed to two years before, it's, it's a, to me, it's a, it's a material difference. Um, Fair enough. Fair enough. But the, uh, sorry, there was a point I wanted to make, which wasn't just to badmouth the man, um, which is not what I wanted to. (laughs) It's actually to talk about the perception that the media had as a result of this story, which was, it's been very hard to have any kind of balanced discussion over it because anyone who's in the vulnerability research community tends to side with him. Um, He's a talented man who does some very good uh, malware analysis research. Um, uh, the I think it was the CTO of Sophos wrote an article after he had been convicted saying justice had been done. And it was a ba- balanced approach saying, you know, look, this isn't the biggest criminal in the world. Uh, he, you know, he didn't have to serve a ton of time in the balance of things. It seemed good. He got convicted for his crimes, um, but he didn't have to suffer they had to take that article down and replace it with a factual point of view, just citing what had occurred as opposed to stating an opinion. And that's what's happening in the media is it's very hard to have a conversation about cybercrime and the cybersecurity profession um, because the media reports on vulnerability researchers, cyber criminals and cybersecurity professionals, all with the same word, they call us security experts or security researchers. People who research vulnerabilities should be called vulnerability researchers. They do contribute, but they are not generating security. They're generating knowledge of vulnerabilities that then other people can use an input, exploit, or use. And, And I think this is sort of like a pivotal case for understanding how the discussion occurs in popular culture and in the media about our profession and about our adversaries. Um, and, and this, this man happens to be sort of on the edge of both. And the thing is, I don't think he's a Uber criminal and I don't think he's um, the finest of all professionals. He's just a guy who's now got a job and does it well. And he was a criminal and he wasn't an awesome criminal. Um, but he is really, to me, like the focal point of where is this uh, societal discussion going to go? How will we be perceived? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of uh, of um, uh, the, the difficult work that uh, science communicators have in the media when they want to convey complex scientific discoveries to the average person. Uh, this is this is you know it requires a lot of background and. and depth of knowledge just to even start even be included in some of these scientific conversations. So uh, scientific communicators uh, 
people like Neil deGrasse Tyson and, and those types of uh, Bill Nye, even right, the popular culture type. Uh, they, they, it's, it's, it's not easy. I can't even imagine how difficult it would be to have that try to have that conversation about the the difference between vulnerability research and security expert, right? I mean, we make this distinction because we day to day, we, we know the difference. But I can tell you that even I couldn't explain it to my wife, and she's an engineer, right? She's not going to, she's, she doesn't care about that difference, right? Like this, we're talking about, a, a, like, it, calling a security experts is at least better than just calling everybody a hacker. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. And, 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 and you know, that like, that, that there's probably a little bit of a, uh, you know, saying security expert is just, mm -hmm. we're, we're trying to be nice and not call them a hacker. Right. Yeah. Security expert, that's, that's, an, that's a hacker, right? Um, well, you know, probably what people are really taking away from the whole story then is, you know, people love a redemption story. They like to think that, you know, a bad guy, but he had a heart of gold. You're right. You know, that's that's exactly thing. right. So, you know, the judge took it easy on him kind of thing. The, and that's the, what people remember. The podcast um, Darknet Diaries um, – awesome podcast if you haven't seen listen to darknet diaries it's great but it's exactly what you say every story is compelling because um jack recider has this great interviewing technique where he can draw out people largely cyber criminals not always uh, and get them to tell their story from their perspective honestly um talk about what they did and how they felt and where they came from there's one perspective i would hold that says you know it's the same story often where these people um, don't take responsibility for their own actions. Um, they blame others. Uh, they laugh things off as a joke or claim there was no harm, but there's another side to it too. In that we, we uh, that show tends to portray these people as either victims or heroes. And we kind of, we want to, we want the story to be that and we can all relate, um, you know, uh, to their story. Um, I, I think that like, it's to me, it's the exact same issue, the way that Darknet diaries portrays those stories and the way Marcus Hutchins, uh, story was portrayed, um, really is telling of where we're at in a dialogue about cyber crime and the cyber profession. And I have no idea where that is going to go, but I, I don't know, self-interest. I'd like us to be the heroes of the story. <laughs> we're we're going to need to we're going to need to lighten the bag of fail that we tend to carry around. <laughs> yeah, I talk I talk to uh, you know pen testers, red teamers. And uh, there's there's certainly this um, aspect of of coolness that people on that side of the profession <clears throat> seem to Whereas a badge, right? Like there, there's, you know, being able to say that, uh, and, and here is where I hope we're going to at least talk about some of these movies because it's going to be these types of movies that people have this idea yeah. of, of, right. I'm thinking sneakers right off the top. Right. So, yes. uh, like you watch sneakers and you're like, mm -hmm. I want it. Like it's a, it's a show about pen testing and that's the, I want to, I want a pen test. And I, and I'm like, I want to be the blue team. I want to be the defender. <laughs> yeah. And everyone's like, oh, that, but it's harder. I'm like, yeah, but you're the true hero. Exactly. 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 Well, so you know what? With that, let's just dive into movies and let's talk about sneakers. Cause honestly, 
uh, out of this list. So I'm gonna tell. I'm gonna rattle off the list. We're gonna cover. I'm gonna say five of these movies, and then we're gonna have another stream another time, and we'll talk about the remainder. So what I want to talk about, uh, I'll, I'll list. I'll list it off, but uh, I'll, I'll pick and choose what we're gonna we're gonna talk about. So number one was Hackers, 1995. Sneakers, 90, 1992. War Games, in 1983. Tron, both in 1982, and then the sequel in uh, 2010. Uh, the Net in 95, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo in 2011, Antitrust, although I don't know if I should really have that one in there. That one's just kind of eh. uh, Silicon Valley, the TV show from uh, 2014 till uh, I think it was just last year they finished up. The Matrix Trilogy, obviously, because that has tie-ins to Neuromancer. And obviously, Mr. Robot, because uh, quite frankly, I'm Christian Slater and it's awesome that way. So, <laughs> um, But yeah, no, so going into movies uh sneakers you know honestly on this list i'm torn because uh you know i have my favorite which i'm gonna say is hackers uh for various other reasons than not technical accuracy per se uh but sneakers to me was actually like it when i first watched it i was like oh wow like they're actually exploring more than just computer security they're looking at like all sorts of other security and like you'd mentioned neil uh, you know, they were doing pen testing even before pen testing was a thing uh, inside that movie. And it was just like crazy. I mean, yes, some of it was very, very fictional, but it was still far beyond cooler than I thought Hackers was, uh, even though I like Hackers better. So, Well, the, the, there's style in Hackers uh, mm -hmm. to, to, to spare. And, and probably mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. somebody might argue that it might detract from from the technical aspect of it uh but mm -hmm. sneakers uh uh so first off i i, I i'm just i just got to say when when i when i met my future wife uh, and we're we're having our one of our first dates and we're talking about our favorite movies we both listed sneakers in our top five uh wow. and and when we moved in together we both had copies so i, I think to this day we still have two copies of sneakers um my wife, however, n not in computers at all. She's an engineer. She's oil and gas. Mm -hmm. But uh, mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, but but I think the thing about sneakers is, as a as a you know hacker movie, it plays very well. But it also yeah. just plays as a great movie that oh. other people get. Like oh, I think absolutely, like, it, it wasn't trying to razzle dazzle you with, no, with no. the technology. And, you and, just looked at it and looked yeah. real, and you went oh, along yeah. with it. And that was the great thing about the movie. I mean, don't, let's just forget it was a star-studded cast. I mean, like, seriously, Sidney Poitier, Ben Kingsley, oh. Robert Redford, Dan Aykroyd, uh, Dan Aykroyd it, River, River Phoenix, Phoenix, River Phoenix. It, it, scene. Like, it was a stacked Mary cast. Mc, Mary McDonnell? Oh. Yes, Mary McDonnell. Yes, yes, yes. The the president and uh, the Battle president <laughs> from Battlestar right. Galactica. Yeah, no, and it, it, it but it was a great movie. And you know what? School even teacher, to this day, teacher. even to this day, if I could have that box, if I could have that box that could decrypt, I'm thinking, oh man. And I'm not even looking at it from a financial gain standpoint. I mean, I'd probably use it to probably do something stupid like you know corrupt North Korea. But that's just out of a sense of you know I got to do that just because I can do it. Uh, but, you know, like the example of crypto ransomware, man, if I could plug that in and stop crypto ransomware, that would be the thing I would do. Number one on my list. If I had that box, I would try and, and, and shut that down as fast so as I could. So in, in my mind, with the clipper chip. <laughs> <laughs> in my mind, if that box did exist today mm -hmm. uh, in, in, a, in a realistic sort of way, mm -hmm. it would be a universal SSL TLS decrypted device. Oh, yeah. 
Oh yeah. That's that's what I see it as. Is it, oh, you, like you just put it in line with any yeah. with any TLS stream oh, yeah. and everything oh, yeah. comes out the other side. Oh yeah. Or potentially quantum computing. Mm. Um, oh, let's. Let, that's a totally different stream, man. Let's let's. <laughs> it's a way easier device to work with, you know, as a screenwriter. It's a quantum box. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Spencer knows. Yeah, that's right. It's just, exactly. it just, it's magic. Oh yeah, no. We use so, quantum. Let me throw this question out. Uh, of of the 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 movies on our our discussion list, did sneakers have? as big an impact on the popular uh, perception and discussion of cybersecurity and hackers that the others do. Because I, my perception is that hackers and the net had like a way bigger mm-hmm. impact mm-hmm. on the dialogue and sneakers was just a good movie with a star studded cast, but mm-hmm. it actually contained the guts yeah. of what okay, we I do agree. from, I from, agree. I agree. Pen here's, testing, here's, surveillance, here's, cryptography. Here's the difference. Three years. Because sneakers came out in 92. The net and hackers came out in 1995. The debut year, Windows 95. This is what, mm-hmm. the, the reason mm-hmm. why I included Windows 95 in the list is because when For, I saw the years, yeah. when I saw the years that hackers and the net had, mm-hmm. um, and what was really funny was the year that hackers and the net came out, uh, me and my friends were computer kids and we, like hackers was these were both bad movies right like look at <laughs> oh, like, yeah. com- computers don't look like that that's not <laughs> yeah. what a computer is it's like you're, and then you're the, hacking with a mac what? yeah yeah exactly and then and then later on it was the net and like the little icon in the yeah, corner yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah, sure. the pie the pie character right yeah but yeah. at the same time there was also this recognition that if one of these two movies was going to be considered better, it was going to be hackers because at least they said the right things, right? Mm-hmm. The books that they talked about were right. The, and, the and, culture was kind of right. And now that I understand how boring it is to look at a black screen with text <laughs> on it, nobody's ever going to publish that in a movie. No. Uh, unless yeah, it's the matrix with the little. Yeah, yeah exactly. And I was going to say, that's probably the reason why I like hackers better. Uh, I mean, for various other reasons, I've watched hackers. I can't remember countless times now. I, in fact, I would say that, it's probably the thing that pushed me towards IT, IT in general, not just security. Um, but yeah, like, you know what? It was the, uh, oh, there's my video again. Um, <laughs> someone's hacking into my camera. I don't know. Um, I was going to say, yeah, no, what, what makes hackers fundamentally attractive for me was the, the, the cyber culture, the, the portrayal of cyberpunk or cyber culture even then. Uh, cause I, I, and I thought that, that, you know, the director, uh, Ian softly, I think he, there it goes again. Uh, I think he did a fantastic job portraying it, you know, everything from the soundtrack. And we talked about the soundtrack and it was a great soundtrack at that time. Uh, but you, you know, like even like, uh, the video games, like when they're in the arcade, you know, fighting or whatever, playing in the arcade, you know, all that stuff attracted to me, you know, in, in 95, I'm like, Oh man, is that what it's like in New York? It's like, I want to be there. I want to, I want to do that. And you're right. Like there's certain elements of it they got right. Like, you know, when they're listing off the books, like the pink shirt book, right? I mean, I remember borrowing that from the library, the local library. Uh, you know, by the way, it's Peter Norton's uh, guide to IBM PCs and uh, computers. So, and you, you know, you've read about IRQs and everything else in it. It was great. It was just a great manual that, you know, uh, then the Unix Bible. I mean, you know, I think most of us started off uh, doing something in Unix in our careers. So, uh, 
yeah, no, it was it was a good it was a good movie from my perspective. Um, so it's but, one of the you know is um, fantastic and stylish as the movie was. There are things it gets right, like that scene with all of those books. Those books were part of the dialogue lexicon and mm-hmm. everything that people talked about. But they also reproduced famous hacks like um, hacking a TV mm-hmm. station. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes, it was highly stylized. It's easy to ridicule the way they presented it. But I think they they did. And, and uh, even the takedown at the beginning when the, the little kid, that's mm-hmm. like based on an actual real guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so much of it was literally the retelling of real stories of hackers mm-hmm. up till the time, mm-hmm. but then with this huge style, but you know what I think that style um, was capturing was, I think it was capturing um, the self-perception of the DEF CON crowd of the time. I agree. Oh. I agree. Um, and, you know, I think there's at least one or two people in the audience who are from back there. And I'd really be interested in saying, uh, hearing, okay, is that your perception you're a hacker from way back then. Did it capture the feeling of being a hacker, even though it was overstylized? Yeah, that's a good question because I wouldn't, I wouldn't have been, I wouldn't been doing that back then uh, myself. Uh, <laughs> it wasn't a Max headroom though. <laughs> uh, but but uh, you're, you're right, Michael. I mean, you know, like in the beginning, uh, when you know uh, the main character Zero Cool is uh, social socially engineering to get into the network. I mean, that is you know 101 of social engineering, convincing a security guard that you know the 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 BLT drive just went AWOL. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Mr. You know, Mr. Kawasaki's gonna make me commit Harry Kane. Harry like, oh, okay, that, that, that right there got it for me, and I'll watch that over and over again. I've used that in my presentation uh, in terms of you know demonstrating social engineering and why it still plays an important role today. Um, but yeah, no. Uh, so here, here's they also captured the culture of um, pranking and trolling. Yes, 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 yes. And I was gonna say, um, yeah, with that, you know, the personalities are larger than life. But you know, I think uh, you know we can identify in the personalities. Uh, so you know, with that in mind, uh, question. So, Neil, if you had to identify with one of those characters uh, in yourself, which one you would you choose? So. Uh... Uh, probably Joey. Actually, okay. I, okay. I've always felt like the noob. <laughs> right? like, I've you know, always, it... I've always positioned myself. At, mm-hmm. I always like to think I've positioned myself as the least smart person in the room, uh, because if I'm the smartest person in the room, I'm probably going to be bored. You know what? Uh, so... I, 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 I tend to agree with you um, uh, about myself that way too. I, I, I try to play dumb. I, you know, honestly, when you even look at my uh, email signature, I don't have my creds in there. I don't have it on my business card, even though, you know, I'm certified on various things, but yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Oh, anyways. uh, So Spencer, if you, uh, you've watched hackers, obviously, if you had to pick a character that you would identify with, uh, who who would it be? I don't know. I mean, I I guess I've been working inside corporate environments and oil and gas companies for a long time. So the, are you one of our operations? I was going to say you're not you're, you're not the plague, are you? You, you don't you don't identify with Eugene Belford, do you? <laughs> no, I wouldn't say. Maybe okay. there's some unseen uh, people no, at pe- that company. 
Penn Jillette is in the movie as like the security ops guy. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Probably be Penn Jillette then. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, what about you, Michael? Who who would you identify with? You know, I was gonna say uh, Eugene, but there are days when I feel like uh, Agent Gill, Richard Gill. Okay, fair uh, yeah, fair enough. Uh, and and it's uh, I think back to about 10 years ago when I really got into cybersecurity as a career full-time. And at the time, I was advising on risks. And at a certain point, I, I had a point of self-reflection. And I'm like, do I really know which of these threats are real? And that's when I took about six months to go and learn every pen testing technique I could I could execute. And I think up till that, I was Richard Gill. I was just yak, 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 full of shit. Oh, <laughs> uh, okay. So, uh, so and moral then you're you see yourself a serial killer. Well, uh, let's see here. There we go. Um, right. You know, honestly, uh, this is the sad truth. If I could be any character in Hackers, I'd want to be Lord Nikon. I like the name. I liked his style. I like you know, like the the way his icon shifted on his laptop. I like the idea of the name because he had a photographic memory. And, you know, I felt that character was so well put. Obviously, if I could choose to be, you know, the hero is zero cool because you end up hooking up with Angelina Jolie, a.k.a. Acid Burn. Uh, you know, <laughs> I would do that, too. But Lord Nikon was like the guy I want. But the reality is, you know, I, I'm always joking around. You know, no one ever takes me seriously. I feel right. Uh, but, you know, somehow uh, a lot of people see me as like, oh, you're pretty well read. You've read so many different books and, you you know, you talk about philosophy and uh, political, you know, political positions. And I'm like, yeah, you know what? That's actually serial, serial killer, serial killer. Yeah. So uh, that's why it's like I, I begrudgingly take that title of, you know, Matthew Lillard's character. So It, it should also be noted, funny fact, never once in the entire movie does serial killer use a computer. Yeah, there you go. Doesn't he doesn't You're touch right a computer yet. once? That, that's true. That's true. Because he hands over his computer to Joey to, to start yeah. hacking the Gibson, right? Yep. Yeah. So, so, in in theory, he might just be a poser. Because if strictly speaking, if this is a movie about <laughs> hackers and hackers hack, he never hacked. He's not that's a hacker. True. That's true. That's true. He talked about hacking, but he didn't really hack. So, actually, you know what? Maybe I I like this moniker already. I just want to pretend like I, I want to be a poser. <laughs> okay. So, uh, you know, I, I lied and I said, we're going to do five. I think we're going to do three. And the reason why I want to do one more is Mr. Robot. Uh, as much as I want to do war games, I think we'll leave that for the next one. Cause I think that's going to be, be a long conversation, but Mr. Robot, I feel out of that whole entire list uh, does the most tremendous job of portraying what we do in the security industry in terms of technical uh, abilities. I think it does a tremendously awesome job of portraying things like, you know, uh, mental illness. And really those two things were, I, I felt like at the forefront when, you know, Mr. Robot just came out. So, um, and obviously uh, if Mr. Robot were me, I would actually be able to have a working camera, but uh, you know, alas, uh, I'm serial killer and I'm, I'm more of a uh, poser. So, uh, but uh, yeah, no, I, you know what? There were so many things inside of Mr. Robot that just, uh, you know, when I first watched it, I'm just like, holy crap, man. Remy Malik is amazing. He's an amazing actor. He's but, so good. Oh, he's super good. I mean, oh, like when you're watching Bohemian Rhapsody, you're like, 
is this the same actor? It's like, wow, he's like got so many different levels and oh, but anyways, not to not to focus on the actor. And but, he was King Tutankhamen. That's right. That's right. <laughs> that's right. Night at the museum. Night at the museum. Yeah, that's right. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I, I felt uh, Mr. Robot really portrays the security industry very well. Um, you know, and uh, yeah, in in some ways, I think you know he's he's kind of like that hero or the anti-hero that most of us you know. Uh, kind of cheer for a bit right because it's like yes he'll use his his techniques for nefarious reasons but if you remember in like the fir- very first episodes he uses it to catch uh you know some really bad sleaze balls and you think you know from an anti-hero standpoint yeah that's what you want to do if i could use these skills for any good it would be to take pedophiles and and the such off the streets so um any comments from everybody i know we're kind of ran, ran over the time the time limit but uh you know I, I had to say this because uh, Michael had the pop up. Plus, I love the TV show. So, um, last, thing, last thing I'm going to say about Mr. Robot is uh, I knew how much how good it was going to be when I stopped caring about how accurate it was. Mm-hmm. Right, like the e- even if it was inaccurate, the 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 acting, the writing, the stories. Uh, they're they're so good they they bring you along and as a professional as somebody who all of a sudden now it's just uh, it does it, it they, they don't make it about that stuff mm-hmm. they just do such a yeah. good job of right. in, integrating it in because if it was just about that stuff mm-hmm. people who weren't us wouldn't be watching it oh exactly exactly right we know it has broad appeal it does very well uh, and and I think that's what's really important is that uh, it doesn't alienate the audience by being too technical and ridiculous um you're right you're right and, you know yeah. honestly it's probably what hackers was trying to be <laughs> back then yeah. right so it achieved uh, what the net and hackers couldn't it was it was technically yeah. accurate from you know our point of view as people yeah. that do this work but uh still dramatic and entertaining for you know everyone else to watch absolutely, absolutely. and it's certainly ca- and, it, and it captures life in a way that that the viewer understands to be real. When we were talking about hackers and how that subculture was just alien, right? Like it was right. just totally different mm. than, whereas this isn't about a subculture. This is about the culture that everybody's familiar with, right? Absolutely. Uh, some kid walking down the street with headphones on, whips out a laptop and starts doing work. That's not alien to us anymore. We see no. these people in coffee shops and mm-hmm. you know, code so, artisans. So Ryan asks, and I'm not sure if it's, I think it's a joke, uh, <laughs> of course it's a joke <laughs> but i actually think in the context of mr robot um it does have a serious answer in that mm. um that uh amongst hackers mental illness is is prominent and i know lots of people who struggle with the issues that are represented in lots of different characters in that show um and, you know, um, early DEFCON crowds, lots of drugs um, uh, among cybersecurity professionals, uh, just immense amounts of stress, depression. Um, I'm, I'm the poster child for that. Um, and it, that is really well represented um, right up to the point of characters committing suicide, mm-hmm. the primary character having... Um, uh, you, a, a rabbit hole of mental illness that just keeps going down. Mm-hmm. I won't. I won't put spoilers out for people who haven't seen um, all the seasons. Um, and I think it represents that. And the 
you know, Spencer, you were saying, you know, you're comparing it to hackers and I think you're right. And I think this is also why it's a better um, representation of both cyber criminals and our profession um, because it shows the blurred lines between them. It portrays them as real people um, as fanciful as a few of the characters are. They're really well rooted um, and seem like regular people in extraordinary circumstances more so than hackers, which is extraordinary people um, in extraordinary uh, circumstances. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes, I agree. I agree. And I agree. and so from that perspective, I think it actually contributes to the dialogue about okay, so why does everyone talk about cybersecurity now? Oh yeah, because it touches everyone's lives. But honestly, the people both who are hackers, cyber criminals, and cyber security professionals, um, there are some unique attributes of them, just like many other professions. Uh, you know, lawyers attract a lot, attract a lot of very mentally ill type A personalities, hyper stressed people are professions attracting a certain thing. And I think it did a fairly decent job. And, and if, you know, if you take a look at F society, that core group, that really strikes me as a great cross section of the kinds of people I know and work with. No, I agree. I agree. So, um, Oh man, we're, we're really over the time limit. So Michael, uh, I think uh, maybe we should wrap this up. I mean, I know we didn't quite cover everything in the movies and, you know, I think movies could be its own live stream, to be honest with you. Uh, actually, almost every topic we went through could be its own live stream. Well, this uh, was supposed to be a movie live stream, right? Like, uh, like the way well, it started. It started as more of a popular culture thing. And I think we gravitated thinking about movies, but the reality was when you think about it, you're like, no, but literature effectively, you know, helped establish the movies, you know, events helped establish those movies. So without that, you don't really have much of a context to work on Agreed. what, why the movies exist. Right. So I felt like, you know, it was important to kind of talk about every little bit. There is one uh, notable exception to that. Okay. Well, war games. Oh, war games. Yes. You're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. War games came out even before all that. So well, it, 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 war games also gave us war driving and yes, yes. Like, yeah. It, yeah. Yeah, war dialing. <laughs> yeah, I know, and that's why it's it's critically important. And I wanted to talk about it, but uh, it's like ah, we ran out of time. So, yeah. with that in mind, I'm going to thank our panelists, Neil and Spencer. Thank you very much for you know joining yeah. us thank and you. you know having this chat. We appreciate you taking your time out of your schedule to join us. Um, I'm going to hand it over to Michael, but before I do that, I'm going to tell everyone please subscribe if you love this cha uh, channel. And please hit the like button if uh, you like this live stream and you want others to find it. So, All right. So um, I got nothing else to say in wrapping up. But as we all leave, before I play the outro, I'm going to ask each and every one of you to quote your favorite line from a hacky, hacker movie. Spencer. Hack the planet. <laughs> Neil. Oh, now you put me on the spot. Uh, it's it's most likely going to be. Would you like to play a game, Moro? Uh, yeah, you know that uh, the BLT drive just went AWOL. <laughs> my voice is my passport. Verify me. <laughs>